Jesus is worthy of our deepest and most costly devotion. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. What is the most valuable thing that you own? What is the most costly item that you have? Is it your home or perhaps a retirement savings account or maybe it's your vehicle or a piece of jewelry, a family heirloom? What is the most important and valuable thing that you have? As you think about that, I want to ask you this question then. Would you be willing to sacrifice it for Jesus, to just give it up, relinquish that for Jesus? Is he worthy of that? Is he worthy of you doing that? Is he worthy of your all? Oh, we continuing our series here, our Gospel Harmony series has now taken us to the final week of Christ's earthly ministry. We often call it the Passion Week. So now then we are only days away from the crucifixion and the resurrection. So as we continue this series unique, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been looking at the testimony from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and putting them together in a harmonized and chronological account following this order suggested in this book, One Perfect Life by John MacArthur. And so today then we come to the Passion Week, this first part, anointing in Bethany. Those scripture verses there in Matthew 21 and 26, Mark 11 and 14, Luke 19, and John 11, 55 through 12, 11, a harmony of those passages. So this anointing in Bethany, when Jesus was being prepared for his burial, knowing all that lay ahead in the next week here. And what is the big idea? What's the big idea? What do I want us to take away from that? Well, it is this, is that Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy of our deepest and most costly devotion. You know, we say that we love him. We say we worship him. We say that he is worthy Is he worthy of the most costly thing that you have, that you own? He is worthy, isn't he? He is worthy of our deepest and our most costly devotion. Before we look at our text here, a little context. may recall Jesus had some friends who lived just outside Jerusalem in a little town called Bethany. It was two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they lived in this little town about two miles east of Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives was Bethany. And Jesus would often stay there when he visited Jerusalem. Now, when you hear those names, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, what comes to mind? Well, we have several incidents in Scripture in which this family is featured. Besides the one that we're going to read about today, there are a couple of other incidents which are recorded in Scripture. One is, remember, there Jesus was at their home and, uh, and, they, and there was going to be a meal there and Mary and Martha, and Martha was what? Busy, very, very busy preparing for the meal. And Mary, what was Mary doing? 
She was worshiping at the feet of Jesus there. And Martha got very upset about this. Lord, Lord, would you tell her to help me with all of this? And what did Jesus say to her? Martha, Martha, right? You're worried about so many things here. But what? Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken away from her. So there's that story of this family. But then there's another story that just happened actually not too long before the events we're going to read in our text for today. And that was when the brother, Lazarus, became sick. He was ill. Ill, how, how seriously ill? Ill to the point of death. And in fact, he did die, didn't he? But they had sent word to Jesus saying, Jesus, our brother Lazarus is sick. They wanted to come, come and heal him. But Jesus delayed. He did not heal him. In fact, he wouldn't have even needed to have gone there, would he? He could have simply said the word and Lazarus would have been healed. But he didn't do that. And he allowed Lazarus to die. Why? Because he knew when he went there, he was going to do something very powerful that would demonstrate his power, his, his power over death, and his identity as the Messiah and the Son of God. He knew that by raising Lazarus from the dead, it would send a very powerful message about him and about his victory and about the hope that we can have in him. And it's something that continues to comfort us all these centuries later. So Jesus now is on his way to Jerusalem for the final time in his earthly ministry. He was heading there to celebrate the Passover for the final time. And then he would willingly give his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. There were plots and threats against his life by the religious leaders, the rulers. They were afraid of him. They were afraid of what he might do to interrupt their position and their power. The common people knew this. They knew about it. And they wondered, given all this plotting and scheming against him, would Jesus dare show his face in Jerusalem again? Text tells us, And the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. And it came to pass six days before the Passover, Jesus drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and came to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. So we see here a dangerous journey, a dangerous Passover journey. You know, the Jewish people would come from all over the world to visit Jerusalem and to celebrate the Passover. And this was Jesus' final Passover celebration during his earthly ministry. And it was a very dangerous place for him to be because of all of the plots against him. But of course, all of that, though, was part of God's sovereign plan of redemption. 
and nothing would happen to him except that which was ordained for him at the time he purposed, even down to the very hour and the minute of his death. No one would take his life from him, but rather he would do what? He would give it. He would willingly lay it down for us. It was here in Bethany where Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Again, it was a powerful demonstration of his power over death, his identity as the Messiah and the Son of God. It was here just days before where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he what? Live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Was Jesus confused saying, if you believe in me, even though you die, you'll live. And if you believe in me, you'll never die. Saying, no, what? We will physically die. But even if we physically die, we will spiritually live. Right? And whoever believes in him will never die spiritually. We'll have eternal life in him. A powerful demonstration of his, of his power over death. So then we're told, And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then as he sat at the table, Mary came to him having an alabaster flask containing a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. And she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair as he sat at the table. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. So here we see a costly anointing, a costly anointing. Now, Jesus had healed many lepers in his ministry, apparently including a man named Simon. By the way, we say, how many miracles did Jesus perform? Right? Countless, thousands, right? I said, well, I don't know. I've got a list of miracles in my study Bible. There's like 30 or 40 of them there. I said, well, we have like 30 or 40 that are listed, specific things there. But actually, what? He healed countless people, Right? So he performed countless miracles. And one of those was a leper named Simon. And so now here is Jesus in Simon's home in Bethany, where there a meal was being served. And perhaps this dinner was an expression of gratitude on the part of Simon to Jesus for this healing. And apparently Simon knew This family, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, for they were there as well. So there is Martha. What is Martha doing? She's serving. Anybody surprised by that? She's busy. She's worth working that. Where's Lazarus? Well, Lazarus is now reclining there at the table with Jesus. But where is Mary? Where is Mary? There she is at the feet of Jesus, worshiping. Worshiping at the feet of Jesus. And so she took 
an alabaster flask of very costly oil. It was spikenard. Spikenard was a precious spice that was imported from India. It's a good long ways away, right? It was sweet. It had a reddish color, and it smelled like gladiola perfume. Do we have any flower aficionados here in that gladiola perfume? And so Mary took this very costly flask of oil, and she broke it open, and she poured it on his head. And then she anointed his feet. Instead of using a, a cloth, what did she do? She wiped his feet with her hair as he reclined at the table. Don't picture a table with us sitting at chairs around a table. Their table was lower, and what would they do? They would lie on the side of it, on their side. And so his feet would have been out. So there was Mary at Jesus' feet, having anointed his head, anointed his feet, and now she's wiping his feet with her hair. Women never unveiled their hair in public. So this shows Mary acting with extravagant love and devotion. And I love how John tells us the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Such a beautiful moment. Let that sink in for a moment, shall we? Picture that scene. Here's a a meal. And then along comes Mary who takes this very costly oil, pours it on Jesus, on his head, on his feet, wiping his feet with her hair. Such adoration, such love, such devotion. Smell that sweet perfume wafting in the air. So peaceful, so beautiful. But when the disciples saw it, there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why this waste? And they criticized her sharply. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. We see a beautiful scene, a costly sacrifice. Smell that in the air and then criticism. Everybody's a critic, right? They're out there. Who has a critic in your life? No matter what you right? Talk about a buzzkill, huh? There it was. Such a beautiful moment. And now here are the disciples raising a fuss about it and what? Sharply criticizing her. You think that hurt Mary's heart? Sure it did. But we're told it was a costly flask of oil. How costly? 300 denarii. Wow. Whoa. What does that mean? 
Is that 50 cents, a dollar? What does that mean? Well, a denarius was a laborer's daily wage. It was a day's work. So it was what? 300 days of labor. It was a common laborer's entire annual salary. So if we put that in our day, that'd be what? Tens of thousands of dollars. Costly indeed, right? I wonder if you had been there, if I had been there, and you saw this, and you see that, and you know what this is. You know it's worth $50,000, and it's just taken and just poured out. What a waste, right? What a waste. Is that what you would have thought? Is that what I would have thought? I hope not. But I might have thought that. And some said, after all, could not this have been given to the poor? You know, it was expected, it was part of their law, that people would give donations to the poor. And particularly at the time of Passover. But now Mary went and took such a valuable thing and wasted it like that. How dare she do such a foolish thing as that? But did she really waste it? No. We're told that the ringleader of those criticizing Mary was Judas. He was the treasurer of the disciples. And as the treasurer of the group, it shows that what? He was highly trusted. You know, we have some folks in our church here who have responsibility for the finances. One in particular who does a wonderful job with that, and I would trust her with every penny. I hope I can trust her. Can we trust you, Linda? She says yes, so okay, all settled, right? But no, who do you get? Do you give the money to somebody you don't trust? No, you give the money to someone you trust, right? Isn't that interesting about Judas? That's how he was perceived by his fellow disciples. Yet he would be the one who betrayed Jesus. He had a secret life in his heart, didn't he? He was what? He was a thief. And he used to help himself to the funds that were given to them. So was Judas really concerned about this being sold and the money given to the poor? I'm sure he wanted it to be sold. I'm sure he wanted that money to go into the treasury. I'm sure he would have made some display of some kind of giving. But what did he really want? He wanted to get that, some of that on his own, into his own hands and own pockets, right? I wonder, do you think Jesus knew what Judas was doing? <laughs> of course he did. But he allowed Judas to continue for a time. You see, Jesus knows full well everything that is going on in his church, doesn't he? And he knows full well everything that is going on in this world. He sees it all. He does not always judge immediately, but judge it, he will. I like there's a... a movie I like, a little spoiler alert. I know I'm going to give you a spoiler alert for a movie that's over 30 years old, but, you know, but here goes. The Shawshank Redemption. Anybody seen that movie? 
It's on about 500 times a day on one channel or another, right? But that's one of those things. You ever have like, like sometimes if you're flipping through channels, there's a movie or show that comes on that like, okay, it's now the 800th time I've seen it, but you get stuck and you sit there and you watch it, right? The Shawshank Redemption is one of those movies for me. Every time it's on, like, oh, there you go, I, I watch it. One of the things I like about that is, is as you know, that uh, the warden of this prison, Shawshank Prison, is corrupt. And he is taking advantage of one of the prisoners there, Andy Dufresne, who has a financial background. He's using him as to, to be his money launderer and his accountant to keep track of all of his schemes and scams that he has going on. And so there is a, a book that has all the information in it and, he, and the warden keeps that in a safe in his office on a wall, a wall safe. And over that safe, there is a sign that his church-going wife had made for him that says what? His judgment cometh, and that soon. Well, that's not a verse from Scripture. It sounds like it, right? But it's certainly a scriptural perspective or thought, isn't it? His judgment indeed is coming, and it will be soon. But here is, here's this man, he's doing this, he's been running these scams for years. And every night he's putting, there's Andy, putting that, that, that uh, book with all the record of it in there, into the safe, behind a sign that says, his judgment cometh, and that's soon. Didn't seem soon for all those years, did it? But one day, what? Bam, judgment came soon, didn't it? for the warden and others. So sometimes we see people that are doing things and we wonder, you know, doesn't God know about this? Why isn't God doing something about this? Well, the reality is God does know about it all and he is doing something about it. As I said before, what? There is no such thing as ultimate injustice in the universe. Nobody is getting away with anything. No matter how it may appear, now, in the moment, God will, his judgment cometh, and that soon. So here is Mary with this beautiful act of devotion. And then she's criticized sharply. How dare you do such a thing? Meanwhile, Judas is thinking, ah, I wanted to get my hands on some of that. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Fulfilled yet again. See the criticism, but then the defense. Jesus defends Mary from her attackers. He tells them to, to leave her alone. She has done a good thing for him. They will always have the poor with them, and they can do a good deed for them anytime. Now, Jesus was not unconcerned for the plight of the poor, was he? But he was making the point, look, 
you will always have opportunity to give to the poor, to do good for the poor. But you will not always have me with you. That is what? With them there physically in the flesh. Now he's always with us, isn't he? But it was only a limited time there and then when they would have him with them there in the flesh. So now was the time to honor them, honor him while he was there with them in the flesh. She did what she could. She kept it for the day of my burial, Jesus says. And in pouring out that fragrant oil on, her, on his body, she did it to anoint his body for burial. Now when a, a rich person died in those days, their body was doused with perfume to help counteract the smell of decay. Then it was wrapped in a burial shroud and then further spices were placed in the folds of the shroud. However, crucified criminals did not receive such treatment. After a body was left to just rot on a cross, it was usually then cast into the city dump and it received no burial at all. And what Mary did honored Jesus and gave him burial preparations that under normal circumstances he otherwise would not have received. Now how much did Mary understand about everything that was going to happen to Jesus? We don't know. But clearly, however much she may or may not have understood, her heart was full of great love and devotion for him. And in anointing him with oil as an act of love and devotion, she was also serving another purpose, whether she understood it then or not. Jesus said she was doing what she could. She was anointing his body for burial. And Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And once again, this promise has been fulfilled in our midst, hasn't it? Just as it has countless times before and will continue whenever and wherever the gospel is preached. Here's just a little speculation. I considered, debated whether or not I'd say it, but I'll put it out there anyway. You know, I wonder, as Jesus wanted this woman's act of love and devotion to be remembered, to be honored, as she honored him, he wanted her act to be honored. And I wonder, perhaps one day, when we are in the presence of the Lord, when, we, when he has made all things new, we're going to have a lot of time on our hands, aren't we, living forever and ever and ever? And I wonder, will Jesus reveal the things that you have done for him that others might see that? Will we hear about things that people have done for him as Jesus honors those who have honored him? I don't know. I know there'll be rewards, right? Perhaps there will be many memorials. I don't know. We're next told then. Now, a great many of the Jews knew he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests 
plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. See additional plotting here then. See, the religious rulers, they were not just plotting against Jesus. They also began to plot against Lazarus. Why? Because Lazarus was an embarrassing testimony against them, wasn't he? He was an embarrassing testimony to the power of Jesus and his identity as Messiah and Son of God. And as a result, there were many then who were beginning to believe in Jesus. They were moving away from the religious rulers and moving toward faith in Jesus as Messiah and Son of God. So what are we going to do about that? Well, we need to get rid of Lazarus then. So they began to scheme to kill Lazarus also. You ever wonder, what might that have been like to have been Lazarus? How would you like that? You, you were sick and you died and now you find yourself in paradise in the, in, the, in the presence of God and then all of a sudden you are called back. This is a little speculation on my part, by the way, Heron. But all of a sudden what? You are called back into your rotting, dying body. What was that like? You're in paradise and now here you are. You're coming out of a grave like this, all wrapped up in this stinking mortal body <laughs> but hey you were you were a powerful testimony to Jesus right and now come to find out because people see you they're believing in Jesus now people are consp- the, 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 the rulers are now conspiring to kill you that's a fine how do you do don't you think By the way, Lazarus was not resurrected, by the way. He was what? Restored to life in the mortal body. And he died again. And one day his body, along with the bodies of all of God's people, will be raised, resurrected in glorious power. But you know, here they are scheming against Lazarus. now. And actually, this is how it is with sin in our lives, isn't it? We can become hardened in our hearts. And this leads us down lower and lower into further sin and depravity. I want us to reflect for a moment on worship, devotion, sacrifice. You know, in the Bible, worship describes both a way of life and attitude, as well as specific activities. Praising God, adoring, expressing reverence to him, both publicly and privately, are specific acts of worship. But in a broader sense, though, worship is an attitude in all that we do. It's an overall lifestyle of serving and glorifying God, reflecting his goodness and glory to others. That word for worship, proskuneo, it means literally to to fall down before, to adore It is to encounter God and to praise him. Of course, Jesus made it clear that it's not about being in a particular place, right? You can worship. I hope we're all worshiping here this morning. But you can worship at home. You can worship in the car on the way to work. You can worship in the grocery store, can't you? Because it's an attitude of the heart. It's worshiping in spirit and in truth. 
It takes place on the inside, in our minds, in our hearts, our spirits, which is the dwelling place of God. You are now the temple where he resides. And God has made us to worship him. And the purpose of the church beyond serving the Lord, spreading the gospel, is what? Is to worship God through Jesus Christ. He is the object of our worship, and he alone, only he, is worthy of worship. Worshiping God then means what? Crediting to him the absolute worth or value that he alone has and deserves as our creator, our redeemer, and our Lord. Worship then is devotion. Devotion is selfless affection and dedication. Selfless affection and dedication. It is loyalty and love for someone. We declare his worth. We praise him, praise him alone. He is the object of our selfless affection, our dedication, our commitment, our loyalty, our love. And worship involves sacrifice. Sacrifice is what? It is giving up something highly valued for the sake of something else considered to have a greater value. So when we worship then, sometimes that means giving up something of great value because he is worthy. He who is so much of such greater value is worth it. In the Old Testament era, they would bring animal sacrifices. With the coming of Jesus, that era came to an end. But we are also to offer up sacrifices, not animals. Aren't you glad we don't do that anymore? Because what? Because he was the once for all time sacrifice. But we still bring sacrifices, not animals. What is the sacrifice that we bring? Ourselves and a sacrifice of praise. Our all. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says what? So, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. How do we worship him? By giving him our lives, our all. So what? As I said, Jesus is worthy of our deepest and most costly devotion. When I ask one question in conclusion here, what do you offer to Jesus today? Where I started saying, what is the most costly or the most valuable thing you have? Is it is it your home? Is it your retirement account? Is it your car? Is it a family heirloom or a piece of jewelry? Well, those things all may have some value, perhaps even a great monetary value, but I would suggest that's actually not the greatest and most valuable thing you own or I do. What is the most valuable thing we have? Ourselves, our hearts, our lives. He is worthy of our all, of our very lives. You know, when I was fairly young, I I had a strong realization of the call of God on my life. I I heard that call, and I didn't know just where it was going to lead, but I had no doubt about that call. 
And there came a point then of realizing that that was leading me toward ministry, toward pastoral ministry. And I was very excited about that. And of course, along with it, I had all kinds of other ideas. I had my own plans. How many of you like to to have your own plans and submit them to God and say, okay, God, here's the plan. Let's do it, right? See, I had my plans. But God had some other plans. And so when I was a young man, I went through a, a period of intense testing, enormous pressures, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, powerful temptations. And I have to tell you, it didn't make sense to me then. But you know what? It all makes perfect sense to me now. I was being tested. I was being formed. Where did my loyalties in life truly lie? Did my life really belong to Jesus or were those just words from my lips? Was I really willing to give him my life no matter what may come or did I want to control it? Well, I came to a a crisis moment and one night I was reminded once again of the words of a song that had touched my heart some years before. And I want to share them with you because these words reminded me of Christ's worthiness to receive my all and to trust him with all the particulars of my life, no matter what. It was a song, some of you will know this this artist. His name is David Meese. And it was a song called, And You Know It's Right, all the way back from 1983. Wow. Right? From his album, Count the Cost. But here's, here's what he says in this. It, it meant so much to me then. It meant a lot to me at that moment, a reminder again, and perhaps it touches my heart even now. But it says, when something in the deepest part of you is telling you the things you need to do, something in the very heart of you is showing you the things you know are true, You can hear it now, growing stronger now. Feel it reaching out to grip the heart in you. And you know it's right. And you know that you need him tonight. And you know you've been running away too long. And you know it's right. And you know that you owe him your life because you know that he's given his life for you. Somewhere deep inside when you know it's right, there's just no other place for you to run. And when something deep inside your very soul and mind is begging you to do what must be done, you know you've got to give it up. You've got to give it all and everything you are because everything you want, you know you will find it all in him. In him. Well, perhaps God is speaking to your heart right now. Who's in charge of your life? Whose plan are you following? Is Jesus worthy of your life? Is he worthy of that flask of oil of your life to be broken and poured out before him? 
Is he worthy of your all? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have a wonderful Savior who has delivered us from the power of sin and the condemnation of eternal judgment, who has rescued us, who willingly left that throne of heaven, humbled himself, became a servant, who perfectly obeyed your law, fulfilled all of your righteous requirements, went to the cross where he took upon himself the judgment for our sin, died, was buried, and rose again in victory and is coming again as the judge of all the earth who will set all things right, restore all things, and make a new heaven and a new earth. Thank you, Lord, through faith in him, in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victory over sin and death, and the promise of his coming again. We too, Lord, can have forgiveness of sin, the gift of righteousness, the hope of eternal life, and the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. There is no greater gift that could be given to us. May we then give that greatest gift that we have, which is ourselves. We fall down before you now. We worship you, Lord. We declare your worthiness. And we say, my life belongs to you. Do with it as you will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.